Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. If you have a really challenging childhood, if you haven't felt loved, then a part of you is frozen in time in that moment, and, and you never, that little childhood damaged self never really grows up. Parents want what's best for their children. They want them to be happy. We hear that a lot, and it sounds logical, of course. And yet there are plenty of seemingly bad parents out there. So many people have difficult relationships with their parents. It's not uncommon to hear or read about someone's toxic mother, for example. So what's going on? In the newly released novel, I'm Sorry You Feel That Way, Rebecca Waite tackles this fundamental question. Celia is mother to a son, Michael, and twin girls, Alice and Hannah. The book unpacks the trauma a parent can inflict and how the seeds of toxicity take root in the first place. It also deals with the wider issues of complex family dynamics, mental health, and the intricacies of sibling relationships. I'm delighted to say that Rebecca is my guest today. Chapter 1. Bad Mother Although Alice and Hannah are twins, they really are chalk and cheese, saint and sinner. I'm sorry you feel that way opens at a family funeral, an unusually humorous event. The moment we meet the siblings, we immediately see a fractious relationship with their mother. But while the book unpicks toxicity in the present, we're very quickly taken back in time to Celia as an eight-year-old girl, to glean some understanding of how she ends up becoming the mother she is today. It was Celia originally who I was most interested in as a character, I would say. So I knew I wanted to write about mother-daughter relationships and uh, particularly a controlling mother and the impact that that has on a girl. It started out as just one girl growing up and on her adult life. But I was particularly interested in how you become a bad mother because I don't think most people sort of spring into being in this slightly monstrous form that we might find Celia in, in the present day of the novel. So I was really interested in how she became like that and what kind of damage she carried herself. And the novel actually started, the first bit I wrote was Celia as a child. It started as a short story about this girl and the impact that her sister's illness has on her life and the way her parents handle that. And and it's really, I think it's a novel about loneliness in lots of different forms. And And I started with Celia's loneliness. And then I looked at how a lot of this damage is passed on to her own children and how that kind of um, leads to the sense of isolation in them as well. But yeah, absolutely, it was really important to me that Celia didn't end up as a kind of caricature because she is in some ways quite a comedic figure in the present day of the novel. She's sort of comically horrible sometimes. But it was really important to me that there was that sense of her vulnerability there from the start as well. And and I think that's still there in the present day to some extent. I think different readers I found have disagreed on this a bit. Some find her fairly sympathetic and some people find her really deeply cold and unpleasant and, and don't really want to spend time with her. I actually have a slightly strange soft spot for Celia, I think because I started with her as a child and looked at the damage that was done in her own childhood. She's a terrible mother. I intended her to be and I, <laughs> I can definitely would not want her in my own family. And she's very manipulative. Um, she's very self-centered. But there's this sort of wound that she carries that makes her incredibly defensive. And I think if you haven't felt really cared for as a child, you haven't really felt loved by your own mother, it's such a primal wound. And that 
can lead you to everything you can do as an adult is sort of this this cry for attention and this cry for love and it can make you very destructive to be around she does get told as a girl we learn this very early on so we're not giving away the crown jewels here but we learn very early on that she's told by her sister that she isn't pretty you know and in that in the way that kids can say the, the cruelest of things because they have absolutely no filter that clearly lands it has a massive impact on on celia and it's almost as if everything that happens after that point is either an attempt to demonstrate that she's worth something or is a screw you it, it's kind of a bit of an act of revenge everything from the precocious way she uses these weird latin phrases as a child but i i wonder the the extent to which that wound was a very deep one at such a young age and, and has perhaps conditioned the entirety of her adult life yeah this sense of nobody wants me and then this cry that she carries within her why don't you want me and then that attempt to try and make people want her and of course as, as anyone really learns as you grow up and sort of um mature your interaction with other people the more you try to desperately cling on to other people the more you drive them away and most people develop that that sense of emotional regulation and that self-awareness and she she hasn't developed that so there's this desperation she'll try to cling on to well, her friend originally and then later her daughters and of course it's completely counterproductive mm. i'm wondering whether it is possible for for one person to be wounded in such a way but also to be a deeply dislikable person at the same time you know and i i wonder whether in a way she's blaming her sister for those hurtful comments at a young age and is almost thereby excusing her behavior later in life by saying oh well it's because you know the thing I never talk about or it's because of my sister it's, it's her fault really not not mine I do think you can be you know a victim and also deeply unpleasant at, at, at the same time would you agree with that? Definitely and I was quite interested in that intersection in writing Celia because I, I don't think she is a very likable character and I didn't intend her to be and yet I think that we can feel sort of pity for her um, and you mentioned sort of the idea of someone looking for excuses for their behaviour. And I think she is immensely self-justifying as well in her behaviour. So she's not someone who I think would ever be able to look at herself and look at her bad behaviour and the impact that's had on others as always going to be an excuse, which means that her relationship with other people is always going to be fraught to some degree, because if you lack that kind of ability to, to take responsibility for your own behaviour, then your relationships will to some extent always be quite troubled and superficial and that's one of the big tragedies of the character I think that she will always be alone to some extent because she can't look at herself honestly and she can't be honest about the way she behaves it's miserable for people around her but above all it's a tragedy for her and for people like that. There's a notable absence in the family of the father of the children and I was reflecting on or have been reflecting at length on mother, particularly mother-daughter relationships for a long time now. And it's always struck me as odd that the focus seems to be, if it's, if it's a toxic relationship, I, I mean by this, that the blame is almost entirely driven at the narrative of it being the mother's fault. The father is often left out of the conversation. And there are many toxic mother-daughter relationships in which a considerable amount of the fault 
lies with the father who seems to get away scot-free in terms of, of criticism do you feel that do you feel that often you know we as society are fascinated overly fascinated by the narrative of it being the mother's fault and tend to forget that there is a huge portion of blame elsewhere that isn't getting directed at the person that really needs a few hard messages delivered to them yeah i think you're absolutely right and i think there's there's several strands to this one is, of course, the huge amount of cultural expectation that the role of mother carries and our tendency then to put the mother at the centre of everything. And, and the early the way people talked about um, early diagnoses of autism, for instance, some early psychiatrists were talking about like refrigerator mothers, the mother's fault, and, um, and mothers were blamed for their children having schizophrenia. There's sort of tendency, even within the medical profession, historically, to look at the mother when something goes wrong with the child or wrong in some other way. Um, so there's sort of the cultural weight of that. And there's also the fact that historically, and I think still now as well, the mother does take a greater role in the child rearing. Nowadays, things are becoming more equal, I think, and fathers are taking a greater role in bringing up their children, which is good for everyone. But I think it's probably true that mothers have had more influence over their child's emotional development, generally growing up. And I know that my mum was around a lot more than my dad when I was growing up. And I think that's probably true for quite a lot of people. And again, I think it's in everyone's favour if things are starting to get rebalanced. I have a child now, she's one. And my husband and I, say, I would say, have pretty equal roles in bringing her up, which I think will only benefit her. But I think it's those two things working together. The idea that we do have this big sort of cultural expectation around the mother. She's sort of this idealised figure, but then she's also this vilified figure when things aren't going well. So there's that whole package. But then there's also the fact that mothers have been more responsible for bringing up the children. And I think it's damaging the weight that's put on mothers' shoulders. And, and certainly, actually, since having a daughter myself, I didn't have a daughter when I was writing this book. I was pregnant with her just as I finished it. I've noted, I sort of thought that I might be immune to this cultural narrative and I wouldn't have the same kind of sense of internalised guilt and anxiety because I've thought about it a lot and I felt like I was quite rational about it all. But actually, I found I'm just as susceptible um, as everyone else. <laughs> I'm not special. I've worried about a lot of things and I felt a lot more responsible for her happiness than I'm than is justified by the control that I have over her life. You know, it's a hot day. I'm not responsible for the weather, for instance, but I worry about her. Behind the Spine is an attempt to inspire you to write and to shine a light on things that might provide a creative spark for your stories. Now, for the second time, we want to go one stage further. We want to offer you an outlet for your work. Our writing competition is back. In Series 3, we set you a writing challenge based on the lessons we've uncovered on this show. We broadcast the two winning entries at the midpoint of Series 4. This time, we're setting you a new challenge. Over Series 4 and Series 5, we've followed the preparation of adventure athlete Kaz Lander as she and her partner prepared to row unsupported around the coast of Great Britain. Remind yourself of what that challenge might feel like by listening to the two episodes in Series 4 and the bonus episode in Series 5. Then, in no more than a thousand words, try to bring that challenge to life. Two characters, one ocean rowing boat and the vast coastline of Great Britain. With that backdrop and your own imagination, feel free to go wild. At the end of the series, we'll pick a winner. We'll pay one writer £250 for the right to use their story as part of Series 6. 
and will also donate the same amount to Kaz's chosen cause, the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity. But now, back to the show. Chapter 2. A Funny Tragedy A strong theme running throughout this entire book is the notion that life really is nothing more than a tragedy with a few hilarious moments, hence my mention of the oddly humorous funeral that opens the book. We jump between perspectives a lot, getting to know each character in their unique way, which I love. But this beautifully heartbreaking perspective on life very much comes from the mind of Hannah, who has a mental illness which causes her many problems and drives the way she treats her own sister. So how difficult was it to get into the mind of a character like this? I've suffered from depression myself. I didn't find it that difficult to inhabit her point of view in that sense. Quite a lot of it is based on my own experiences. So I was sort of cannibalising my own life story in some ways to tell her story. Um, I was very depressed when I was 17, 18, was referred to a psychiatrist, responded to antidepressants very well, Um, took quite a long time to get better, and then I've had much more minor relapses um, through my 20s and in my 30s. And after I had my my baby, which is very common and entirely predictable, but it's very, very destabilising, the experience of postpartum. So I felt like I was in pretty well placed to tell Hannah's story in that sense. Um, And my first novel, actually, which is many, many years ago now, was about a young man and his experience of depression and how that Mm. fractures a family. So in some ways, I felt like I was returning to to familiar ground with Hannah. She's one half of an egg, essentially, that becomes twins. I'm fascinated by twins. There is one case of twins in my own family. And I think it's a fascinating concept, the notion that these two people literally created together at the same time became two people that were born and then live every hour of every day knowing that they were born within minutes of each other. I found both of them fascinating. But as a reader, I didn't feel that I had a full understanding of them until I framed everything through the notion through the lens of them being twins and almost as if in order to understand Hannah I also had to understand Alice and and vice versa was that was it a deliberate choice to make them I guess all choices are deliberate but was that what you were going for Rebecca we did you want us to understand that the only way you can really make sense of this relationship and these two people is to understand that actually they're the same person split split in half not literally but you know, biologically at least. Yeah, I think it is interesting. Um, You said all choices are deliberate, um, which is true, but I think some choices are more conscious than others. And that was quite a conscious choice that I wanted them to be twins. They're not identical twins. I think the cover does make them look like they're identical twins, um, slightly misleadingly, which I love. I love the cover. It's a Mm. side note, um, which I can say because I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, (laughs) So yes, twins, that partly goes back to that idea of loneliness, wanting to write about different kinds of loneliness and a sense of isolation. And I thought, what is the loneliest experience you could have within a family? And I thought, what if you have a twin who doesn't like you, which is essentially Alice's experience with Hannah, because again, there's that massive expectation with twins of that twin closeness and this sort of stories about t- twins being sort of semi-telepathic with each other and so on, that, that intensely close connection that you can't have with any other human being that perhaps you see in twins. I should say I'm not a twin myself, so this is merely observation of twins I know and um, 
cultural expectation about twins, I guess. Um, so yeah, I thought that would be really interesting because originally I had planned to make them sisters, but not twins, with Alice as just a couple of years younger than Hannah. But then once I thought of the twin idea, that seemed a lot more interesting to me in terms of exploring sibling estrangement and the the complexity that their mother has given to their relationship with each other because Celia, again, part of her control as a mother is is driving a wedge between the twins, not consciously, but she needs to come first with everyone. So she wouldn't be able to bear the idea that they come first with each other. So this idea that she is the most important person and she comes first with each of them, that's been indoctrinated in them from a very young age, I think. The notion of being the favourite is a fascinating one. And that came across in the book, the way that siblings often have a, a very, very different recollection of of things that happened to them when they were younger or, or the accusation were will be ah well that's because you were always mum's favorite or dad's favorite or, or whatever it is this sibling rivalry to to want to to be the favorite obviously with twins that's a deeply problematic situation to be in but as as twins i think they're fascinating so if take alice for example this notion of tragedy and and hilarity or celebration if you like in in the briefest of moments alice is incapable of enjoying moments of celebration in things like sport because she will inevitably feel sympathy for whoever loses the the match the game you know whatever it is and i loved alice throughout this she's such an interesting character but i often feel i often ask myself what would i do if I met these characters, if they were real people, which of course they are because you've you've created them um, and brought them to life. If I were to meet her, how would I feel? I'm pretty certain if I met Celia, it wouldn't be long before she told me about her difficult childhood so that she could then get on with the business of saying nasty things to me. I don't think she would make that a secret from, you know, from, from anyone really. But Alice, no. I didn't know whether I would... She walked through the door right now, whether I would go up to her and give her a massive hug and say, everything is going to be fine. You'll be all right. Life will be OK. Or whether I would immediately arrange a massive intervention and say, you need to sort your life out. This is ridiculous. She took me on both of those journeys throughout this book. She's so complex and layered, isn't she? Yeah, I, I have a real soft spot for Alice, but I totally can see the frustration that she engenders in people as well, because she's very hapless and she's quite passive in some ways. She's very kind, but she's um, she doesn't have much natural fight in her, or at least not that emerges for most of the novel. There's a novel I love by Barbara Pym, the sort of semi-forgotten writer now, um, called Excellent Women. It's about this set in the 50s there's a sort of woman in it called Mildred and she's very sort of put upon she's in her early 30s but referred to as a spinster because of the times and my husband and I both read it around the same time and I remember saying I absolutely love this character Mildred she's so kind of wry and funny and my husband came away having almost as if he'd read a totally different book and he said she was the most frustrating character I've read like she's so um spineless why doesn't she stand up for herself and I think some of that idea has re-emerged through the character of Alice because I think she probably will divide opinion and I sort of felt it a bit within myself as I was writing her you know stand up for yourself Alice but I, I think I've sort of frozen my teenage self in time through writing Alice just the the level of internal commentary and insecurity and overthinking 
everything you do or say and worrying about other people and worrying about how you're coming across. I have thankfully grown out of that to some extent. But I think um, if you imagine someone like Alice, who's had this sort of critical commentary from her mother all through her childhood, all through her teenage years, and is still immensely influenced and controlled by her mother. So that kind of relatively normal insecurity that you might grow out of, some people might grow out of, has been really deeply embedded in her psyche, this instinct to question herself. And I think what a good parent does is probably tries to mitigate that instinct that we might have to question ourselves and our child, whereas what Celia will have done is perpetuated it, you know, because it she needs people around them to doubt themselves. And, and again, this isn't conscious from someone like that, but I, I think that partly the the frustrating side of Alice, her doubtfulness and her haplessness is because she's a product of her childhood and the mother that she has. I mean, she's incredibly authentic. I, I think about her as being perhaps the most authentic thing in it because she's she's not really, she's not hiding behind anything. She's not wearing a mask. She is open about the fact that she could go either way, depending on which way, you know, the wind is is blowing. And mm. I think we often no, forget, yeah, we all, we all wear masks or adopt personas depending on the situation. So I think, you know, this whole, you know, stand up for yourself, love there's there are occasions where you think i'm entirely sure why you're not standing up for yourself because that's not who you are and and maybe maybe the change that she goes on is to realize that actually that is who she is and she could be comfortable living in that skin you know we don't necessarily need to have massive transformations in characters i think that's always a good you know learning point what we like are characters that change they have to confront something but if what she's confronting is the fact that it's okay to be like this you know that's that's not an issue you are okay to live your life in this particular manner and you are living your life in this manner because you are a product of your environment and the family that you were surrounded with when you when you, when you grew up that's actually a major thing for her to learn is that some of this is down to the choices that she makes, but a huge amount of it is down to what happened to her through the relationships that she's had since she was born. And that I loved. That's why I love her because I think, you know, she's really grown into her life and actually she can be very proud of what she's achieved given through, given what she's had to put up with. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right that she is the, sort of the only honest character mm. I think in the not the only completely honest character and the only authentic character in the sense that everyone else is performing to some degree and Alice isn't performing so Hannah is performing this role of rebel that she's mm. internalized in her childhood that's her response to her mother Celia is performing the role of victim everyone must give me attention everyone must feel sorry for me Michael is performing this role of I am very busy I'm very important always trying to impress his mother, not consciously so. And none of these roles are really very conscious in people. And Alice, Alice is not performing, as you say. I think that's a really intelligent way of reading the character, which I, I didn't do consciously myself. Yeah, I mean, Michael even, he's so busy, he even arrives late for the funeral. You know, I, that's, that's yeah. you know, that's classic. And of course, get, immediately gets all of the attention when he, when he, when he does. Um, that's all about he's one of us bustlers and I would say actually I've got a real soft spot for Michael as well I've just I think I always have a soft spot for the unlikable characters because mm. I feel sorry for them right because I know people like this in real life which is I guess how most of us write our characters and and that lack of self-awareness you know you will never really really be liked wherever you go mm. people like Celia and Michael and, and yet 
you know, they, they each carry their own damage. And my pillow is basically well-meaning. He's not cold and, and intermittently malicious in the way that Celia can be. He is deeply annoyed, though. Oh, yes. Deeply. Yes. And, deeply and well, annoying. I mean, I hope he is. So otherwise I failed. No, no, no. He, re- he really is. And also, I think, fully aware of the special nature of his relationship with his mum. Yes. And he is very much a product of his childhood as well, just like the girls. Chapter three, intergenerational trauma. In the episode before this one with Angela Findlay, we discussed the notion of intergenerational trauma in great detail. And interestingly enough, this idea is a prevalent part of Rebecca's story too. The idea that you can pass trauma onto the next generation seems cruel, vindictive and unnecessary. But the more I've learnt about it, the more conscious I am of its inevitability. As Angela told us, it's not necessarily consciously passed on. In some strange twist of fate or biology, unresolved emotions can seemingly be passed through the bloodline. So if Celia were to have thought about her own childhood trauma while pregnant with the twins, could her own feelings have been passed down to them? And without wanting to excuse her horrendous behaviour, could her own intergenerational trauma explain why some parents can be bad despite wanting the best for their kids? And there's more research going on into epigenetics now as well, Mm. the idea that trauma can actually change the expression of your genes, which can then in turn be passed down to the next generation. So an actual biological basis for the idea of intergenerational trauma. I was sort of more focused, I think, on this idea of destructive patterns of behaviour being passed down. And at one stage, when I was um, writing Celia's own childhood, she's got this very sort of cool, detached mother, not sort of actively unpleasant, but just not particularly preoccupied with Celia, much more focused on Celia's sister, Katie. And at one stage, I was thinking, ooh, it would be really interesting to discover why Celia's mother is so detached from one of her daughters. I'd like to go back and write her childhood. But then I thought, you know, no, you can't. You can't just go back endlessly in this domino chain and write the childhood of every character through successive generations going back through history, because that would be a very long novel and you do not have time. Um, But that's, I'm almost obsessed, I would say, with that idea of passing on your own damage to the next generation, because I think we all do it. And I'm sort of even more conscious of it now that I've got a daughter myself and looking forward to seeing all the damage that I may or may not pass on to her. Uh, and I also think having, you, you mentioned Celia sort of being pregnant, that, that moment when she's pregnant with the twins and having children of your own, that that can be very, um, well, triggering as a word that's overused, but I can't think of an alternative right now, but triggering in the sense of how you suddenly start thinking more about your own childhood and your right. own sort of models for motherhood or your own models for parenthood. And I think that can be very, very unsettling, that sudden experience of becoming a mother to someone who hasn't had a very positive experience with their own mother. Because suddenly you see yourself again as a little child, just as you're looking at your own little child and you think, oh, I was so small and vulnerable. And why was I treated like that? Um, so in answer to your question, a long answer, yes, I was really, really interested in exploring that idea of damage being passed on and passed on. And again, not consciously so, and not to let anyone totally off the hook, because mm. that's not to say that we're not in control of our own actions. But I think there is a huge amount of our behavior that's driven by this sort of primal childlike self within us that's crying out in pain and 
desperately trying to get the things it needs still. So in Celia's case, still trying to get this sense of love and validation from other people. And that drives so much of her actions as an adult and as a mother. So it's almost like if you have a really challenging childhood, if you haven't felt loved, then a part of you is frozen in time in that moment. And, and you never, that little childhood damaged self never really grows up. And so then you're this sort of petulant child crying out through adulthood. And that's what she's doing with her daughters. You know, give me the love that my mother didn't give me. But you yes. can't do that to your children. You can't make your children mother you. Yes, there is. A, it's a huge cry for validation, isn't it? It's a huge scream of fix this problem for me, which is ridiculous mm. because there's no way that that can happen. There's nothing that they can yeah. give her that can help her process that given the way that she conducts every aspect of her life. And, and it's, it's so destructive for her as well. And, and that's, you know, that would be, if I'm, if I, if I could meet Celia, I'd say, don't you see, this is, this is harming you as well as everybody else. You know, you're not immune to the damage that, that, you, that you're causing here. Yeah, so it's so counterproductive and it just makes her lonelier and lonely at this behaviour. So, I mean, what she needs is a lot of therapy, but equally, I think she, a character like that, she, I fear she may lack the self-awareness to actually benefit from therapy, but that's probably what I'd advise if I met her in the street and she would be <laughs> puzzled as to why a stranger is advising her to have therapy. But I think, I think that's partly why, I think, I know some readers have really really not warm to Celia which is very understandable she is quite unpleasant but I think that's why I've retained this real soft spot for her because essentially I think of her as a sort of wounded child and her behavior again towards her daughters is deeply unpleasant can't be excused but I wanted it to be clear what was driving it not that she's this sort of psychopath but that she's not really in control of herself a lot of the time she's flailing in the way that a little toddler flails having a tantrum yes and I got the sense of her and and this is why I asked earlier about, you know, going from the funeral back in time to her as an eight-year-old girl. She is essentially still that eight-year-old girl that was mm. on the end of all of her sister's comments and, you know, and hurtful things that were said to her. I think she's stuck there and yeah. maybe therapy would help, but you're right. I'm pretty sure she would put significant roadblocks in the way of therapy helping just because... I wondered whether this is okay. Let's let's go let's go here because I think this is interesting. If she were to have therapy, and if she were to deal with those problems and almost let that go, what I think you've done, Rebecca, is create a character who might actually be deeply upset that you've taken her superpower off her. I don't think she wants to lose the fact that she was hurt because I think she really likes going on about it or really likes using that to her end. And, and that's why I think she's fascinated. I think she knows deep down that if she could be helped, what would she have to complain about? And, and I yeah. think that's an entirely authentic reaction. Yeah, it's a sort of weapon, her, her victimhood, I think, that she uses. That she is, it's part of her identity now that she feels hard done by, that people owe her things that she hasn't been given. I think it would be very difficult for her to let that go. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm Sorry You Feel That Way is out now. Rebecca Waite, it's a stunning novel. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Rebecca Waite for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? 
Giving context to your villains will make their motives feel much more believable and will allow the audience to connect with them in multi-layered ways. Instead of creating a character to be hated, create one which leaves your reader or your audience conflicted. When you're battling with complex character dynamics, sometimes it pays to tell a story from multiple perspectives, especially when each character can have widely different accounts of the same event. The journey of a character doesn't always have to see them overcoming their flaws. Just like real people, their flaws are what make them. Their acceptance of those flaws may be the prize. If you found the piece about intergenerational trauma interesting, please do go back and listen to last week's episode with Angela Findlay if you haven't done so already. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Additionally, sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our new exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated, and they're designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.